I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to the 27th Psalm, uh, Psalm 27. Last week, we began a new series in which um, my aim, my intention in the coming weeks, uh, for as long as we remain in this kind of lockdown period, is to just open up a number of the Psalms, and I've titled the series Songs in the Dark. I've chosen Psalms that seem to be written from a dark place, um, but which um, speak and give voice to prayer and to hope and to a godly perspective from within that kind of position or that place. And so I want to read to you the 27th Psalm. And again, you can follow along uh, on the website. It's just below the video. Let me read this to you. It's a Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me, to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, for forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. <clears throat> now, as I said, the Psalms that I've chosen for this series are, are songs written in dark places. And it's obvious when you uh, hear the words that, that David uses to describe his circumstances that he has a very great temptation toward fear because of the situation that he's in. And he opens with a confession that he won't be afraid. You know, whom shall I fear, he asks, of whom shall I be afraid? But only because he has very great reason to fear. And he describes a situation in which his enemies are all around him. And he says that the evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. He's describing a situation of extreme physical danger, the fact that his life is very much in danger and that people are there to, to try and take and steal his life away from him. And I think, it, therefore, it seems to me, although the circumstances are very different, the, the emotions are very similar. There's the fear of death or the potential fear of death. There's the, uh, the sense of being surrounded, the sense of being isolated, the sense of being uh, put in a position in which you're in a dark place and in which your only hope, your only refuge is to speak and to call out to God. And I want to just, at the very outset, just encourage you to notice what David is like in the psalm, the, the place from which he speaks. 
And the first thing you see about him here is that he, he is theologically clear-minded. He knows who God is in this situation. He opens the psalm by saying, The Lord is my light, my salvation, and my stronghold. And these are all words that kind of express his unbelievable confidence in the faithfulness and the steadfastness of the living God in the midst of danger. I'm particularly interested in how he describes God as light. I think that the, no doubt, the um, the kind of historic situation that was in his mind when he said that was the exodus when the Israelites had been rescued from slavery in Egypt and they were in the wilderness. But there they followed a, a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And it seems to me that this idea that God is light to us is profoundly important at a time like this. Jesus says about himself in John 8, he says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, in most situations in life, um, we can be under the illusion that we're, we don't need the light, that we're, we're fine as things are. But when you find yourself in a situation like the one we're in now, this particular moment of crisis, suddenly you can feel a conscious awareness of the need for light. And I was reminded of that uh, moment in The Lord of the Rings when Galadriel, that kind of elf queen, gives to Frodo the phial, which is, um, holds a light inside it. And she says to him these words, she says, May it be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. That's where David is at at this moment in the psalm. All the other lights have gone out. But he is theologically clear-minded about God. And he says, you're my light, you're my salvation, you're my stronghold. And as a result of that, you also see how he's, he has this, he's emotionally level. He's in a good place emotionally. He says at the start that he doesn't have any fear. He says in verse 3, yet I will be confident. It's not like he's kind of cowering back in fear or hiding in a dark place. He's, he, has this, he kind of stands up straight. He kind of holds himself upright and says, I'm confident. And he speaks about offering in God's tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. And you think this is not a guy who, despite the situation, is, is anxious or afraid. He's a guy who knows who God is, and he has this unbelievable stability in his emotional life. And therefore also he's optimistic. And this is where the psalm ends. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And he instructs you as the reader or as the hero, wait for the Lord. Just wait. Just watch and see what God will do for you. Now, the reason why I'm wanting you to pay attention to this particular psalm is because I think it gives us a window into the mind of a man of God here, David, in a dark place. And the question that we want to ask is, what is the secret to his joy? How is it that he could be in a situation of unbelievable danger and yet at the same time, He's very clear about who God is and he has this, this joy that's just irrepressible and this confidence in God. And that's the question I want to ask. And I don't think it's because he was in some way in a situation of naive denial of the reality around him. You know, I think in many ways, I think that part of the reason why the world is in a situation of panic right now is because we have been in naive denial. We've been in denial about the realities of death. We've been in a situation where we've had this illusion like we're, we're powerful and that we are in control of our destinies. And then, of course, a situation like this happens and those illusions begin to disappear very rapidly. 
Now, David is not a man who is in denial about reality, and Christians do, do not need to be in denial. We're conscious of death. We're conscious of the reality of death. We're conscious that our death could come sooner than, than we want it to. And therefore, denial is not the reason why we're happy. And that's, not, that's also true for David. Nor is he level in this way because of the strength of his army. He was a man who could command an army. He's in danger, but yeah, he had an army at his disposal. Is that why he's happy and confident? No, it's not the reason he gives. And I think that at a time like this, the sources of our confidence are peeled away and revealed for what they are. I think if you could describe one thing that captures our culture, our cultures and societies' sense of confidence and optimism about humanity, it's science. We are the people who can control the future because we are, we are knowledgeable, learned, and we are able to do things, miraculous things. And of course, there's some element of truth in that. But of course, at the same time, the weakness of our ability is exposed in a moment like this. You know, a minuscule microscopic organism can come and humble us to the ground. And David's confidence isn't misplaced. It's not in his armies or the strength of his generals or any of those things. So the question is, where does his sense of confidence and joy come from, even in this dark season? The answer I want to give you is there in the fourth verse. I think I would summarize it like this. That despite everything that's going on in David's life, he is consumed with a higher purpose. This verse, a very famous one, captures it well in verse 4. It says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I think, when, when I think about the situation that we're in right now, I think this is a profoundly important moment for us, collectively as a church, a moment for Christians nationwide, and for you personally. And I think if I could articulate this first negatively, when you're in a crisis moment like this, it exposes the reality of your walk with God and your, of your faith. It shows you whether, when everything is taken away from you, it shows you what's left and what your emotional life is like now is is in some sense the real you are you an anxious or fearful person are you are you aware that you're on shaky ground a moment like this is profoundly important because it exposes the reality of our spiritual lives and of what we really hope for in life you know our fears especially expose that but at the same time we can put this positively this is a profoundly important moment because it's a moment of opportunity when, when things are taken away from us in life, we have a brief window in which we can reassess the direction and purpose and central pursuit of our lives. And I want to stress that for you right now. This is a unique moment in life. This could change the direction of your life for years to come long after this crisis is over. You could look back and say, 2020 during lockdown period was a time when my life changed direction. When everything was taken away from me, and I discovered what I was here for. I discovered what matters in life. And my encouragement to you is, as we unpick what David's saying in this verse, that you think, am I responding to God with a desire to change right now? Now, let me show you what it is that this higher purpose is about and show you what this, this verse teaches us about David's pursuit at this time. Let me show you a few things. First of all, this is a single-minded purpose a single-minded purpose he says to god one thing have i asked of the lord 
Now, he's not at this point. You think, well, what's the one thing he's asking for? He's not at this point asking for protection and deliverance and all the things you might think he's asking for. Of course, that does come later in the, in the psalm. But he's more concerned with this higher singular focus. One thing have I asked of the Lord, he says. And you ask, well, what, what is it he's asking for? Now, this idea of having, making your life about one thing is a, is, an, is, a, is a concept that comes through many places in Scripture. But there are a few um, very key places where this comes through. And it gives us real instruction in dark moments. I think about that passage in Matthew 6, which I read last week, when Jesus is teaching about anxiety. And he says, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? And you ask, well, what's the fundamental antidote to anxiety? What is it that you can do in a situation where you are prone to or tempted to be afraid or anxious? And Jesus says this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, Jesus offers to us this this kind of antidote or this medicine to the situation of being afflicted with anxiety. He says, when all your thoughts are scattered and frayed and you're thinking about all the things you don't have and all the ways in which life could go wrong, he says, choose one thing. Choose to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And with that, I think there is, a, there is the effect that anxieties melt away. When you get the one thing in your life very clear, when you can, with Jesus, agree and say, I want to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then the effect is that anxiety begins to just fall away from you because that one thing becomes the central focus of your life. Similarly, I think also about that famous passage in Luke's gospel when uh, it's a famous story when Jesus goes around for dinner at his friend's house, Mary and Martha, and uh, what, what's happening is, you know, it's inappropriate for Middle Eastern hospitality and custom. Martha is busy and preparing and making sure that the home is ready for Jesus. Mary, on the other hand, who I think is the younger sister, and, you know, this might be typical of you and your sibling relationships, she seems to be slacking off. She's sat at Jesus' feet in the lounge listening to him speak while Martha's busying away in the kitchen, and Martha complains, you know, aren't you going to send her to come and help me? And Jesus replies, he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. There's that phrase again, one thing. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. There we have the exact same medicine or antidote to the problem of anxiety and distraction, afraid mind. What is it? It's setting your heart and your mind on one thing. One thing have I asked of the Lord, David says. One other passage which agrees with this is that one uh, I read to you in Philippians 3, just a bit further down, read to you at the beginning of the service. Remember, Paul's reflecting on all the things he's lost in life. He's reflecting on everything that he lost in terms of his attainments within Judaism as the best among his peers, the credence and the kind of praise of man that was his in that former life. And he said, I lost all these things and I count them as rubbish. But then you ask, well, what is it that replaced? What, what is it that was so great for him that it could replace all of that former life in Judaism? And he puts it very succinctly when he says in, in Philippians 3.13, Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but I, one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind. In other words, not mindful of all the things I've lost, or all the things I could worry about, or all the things that could make me afraid in life. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One thing I do, he says. So we have this idea running through scripture that the person who might experience afraid life because they're under attack or because they're in a dark place or because there's many things to be afraid or anxious about. When they have a single-minded focus upon God, the effect is that their emotional life is, is more or less stabilized and set right. Now, I want to ask, why is this such a potent truth? It's because there are many things in life that can call for your attention right now. There are good things and bad things that call for our attention. And the life you live is, in a sense, a sum of what you pay attention to. What you are fixing your mind upon, what you are paying attention to in your life is what your life is ultimately about. When we, you know, when, when we are distracted by the things of this world, sometimes they're good things and those things become for us like idols. Or sometimes they're bad things. They become for us like monsters or demons. But the Christian is someone who can, in a sense, wall out those lesser things and say with David, one thing have I asked of the Lord. You get the main thing right. And you experience the peace and the calm and the centered um, confidence that comes when you can say with David, this is, this is what my life is ultimately about. It's a single-minded purpose then. Let me tell you a second thing about this prayer. David is articulating what you can describe as a kind of settled or steady purpose in life. Now, the language here that I want you to think about is this, this the word dwell. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. This is a beautiful and very powerful concept, the idea of dwelling in God's house or being with him in this way. And I want to explain to you what I think is captured by this word dwell and why it's so vital. I think the language of dwelling speaks about stillness. Pursuing God ultimately is the desire to find rest and to find peace and to find stillness with him. Now that doesn't preclude the fact that it takes great effort sometimes and diligence and exertion to end up in that place. And I think about the devotional life of Christ. Jesus went to great lengths. He would get up early in the morning. He would walk off into desolate places, but so that he could find stillness with his father You'll have experienced this when you've um, been on a long walk or climbed a mountain. You know, there's an enormous amount of exertion and energy, but there's a reward at the end of that exertion and energy. And what is it? It's the stillness that you experience at a mountain peak or in a quiet place in, a wood, in the woods where you've, you've found solitude and you've found calm. In Hebrews 4, there's a, there's a phrase where the writer says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And you can see this kind of exertion to find stillness in David's prayer. One thing have I asked, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. He wants to find that stillness. And of course, it requires effort and determined effort to get there. But it is a place of stillness with God. That's what dwelling speaks of. Dwelling also speaks of this, of constancy. David's devotion here is is, is single-minded, but it's also constant. It's not a, you know, I, I know... I, like many of you, will have experienced moments in your, in your Christian life or your spiritual life where you felt 
like you are you are really passionate and things really are going well and then the passion can sort of die down and you're up and down and this can be the description of our spiritual lives through seasons there are times when you're running hard after god and times when you're when you're really not feeling it. And this can even be true, if you're anything like me, it can be true on a day-to-day basis. There are days when you wake up and you feel vigorous spiritually. And there are days when you wake up and you feel um, a little bit beaten down by the circumstances of life or by emotions that you can't control or any of those kinds of things. And so it is in our lives that we can be walking with God one day and backsliding the next or you know, we're, we're not necessarily constant creatures. But what Dave is describing here with this language of dwelling is a constancy to dwell is to sit in one place and not to be moved from that place it's a the 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 picture that the the bible uses of dwelling is also spoken of walking with god this idea of plodding along in your spiritual life that there is you're not necessarily running too hard so as to lose all um, energy and be out of breath but you're walking steadily with with god and with christ by the spirit and I think that this language of dwelling speaks about that. It's about stillness, but it's also about this constancy of remaining in, remaining in a place of, of, of surrender and of pursuing God. But dwelling, of course, also speaks about the presence of God. When he says that there's one thing he's seeking after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. What did he mean by dwelling in the house of the Lord? And I, I don't think that the answer is being in the the grounds of the tabernacle. The temple wasn't built by this point. His son Solomon would build it. But I don't even think that he's speaking about being in the tabernacle grounds. No one lived there. And I'm not sure that that was necessarily David's thought at this point. Solomon says about the temple later on, he says, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. You know, for David, this experience of dwelling in God's house was not necessarily a physical thing. It wasn't necessarily about being in a specific space geographically. Well, well, what was it then? And I think the answer is that it was more about his spiritual life. When Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well in Samaria, the Samaritan woman, and she's asking him questions about where we worship, where's the place, where's the most holy place to come and worship God. Jesus dismisses it and says, he says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then he says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And it seems to me that this is a time above all when we need to feel the weightiness of what is being described here. We, you know, when David says, one thing I've asked that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, you can say, well, look, I'm stuck in my own house at home. I'm stuck in my flat. How can I experience the presence of God? I can't even gather with his people. But what he's describing here is not a physical change of scene for you. He's describing a spiritual state in which you have this stillness with God, in which you are constantly walking with him. But more than that, in which you know his presence with you right now and moment by moment in any given day not even just on a sunday not even just right now but constantly knowing the presence of god that's what he's describing here one thing have i asked so that any number of things can be happening around you the chaos and the crisis in the world around us could get much much worse 
and nothing changes for you in a sense because you're dwelling and you're dwelling in God's presence. You're dwelling in his house. Describes that spiritual reality of the person whose heart is conscious of the living God and is engaged with him in this way. One of the commentators, Alexander McLaren, described it like this. He said, its fulfillment of this prayer depends not on where we are. Those are comforting words, aren't there, at a time like this, when where you are can feel like a very profane place, not a spiritual place. It doesn't depend on where we are, but on on what we think and feel. For every place is God's house. And what the psalmist desires is that he should be able to keep up unbroken consciousness of being in God's presence and should always be in touch with him. Now, it may be the case that in the normal run of things, when you have school runs to do or you've got the office to get to, that maintaining this kind of spiritual life is very difficult. This is why I'm saying this is a this is a unique opportunity right now in which you can begin to foster this kind of longing for God in which the constancy of being and dwelling in his presence becomes your new reality. And I want to urge you toward that. It's a single-minded purpose. It's a steady and settled purpose. Here's the last thing I want to tell you about this prayer. It is an all-consuming purpose. It is all-consuming. The language that David uses here And he says that one thing have I asked that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. For what purpose? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, to gaze and to inquire. Now, what I want to stress for you at this point is that I think that what David is speaking about here is he's speaking about the activity of the mind and of the perception of your attention of of how you are engaged in your thoughts with the things of God. The Christian life has to encompass your whole being. It has to encompass your heart. It has to encompass your will. You choose to do God's will. But more, it always begins with the activity of the mind, with what you're beholding, with what you're thinking about, with what you're gazing upon, with what you're inquiring about. It seems to me that all through scripture, spiritual life always begins there. It begins with what the person is contemplating, what they're looking at. And this, I think, is captured well when uh, in Matthew 6, when Jesus says this, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy or literally if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And what he's saying there is that the person whose eye or whose attention or whose mind is constantly darting around all the many things that you can run after in life. He says what you'll experience is a kind of darkness inside. But the person whose eye is single, it's translated here healthy, but it's literally single. The person who is fixed upon one thing and that thing being God, their eye, their attention, their mind is, is, is filled with light and your whole being is therefore filled with light. So what David is describing here in this prayer that I may gaze upon, that I may inquire is the person whose whole life is controlled by one obsessive, all consuming purpose, which is to know God and to, to, to know him more deeply and to inquire in his temple in the way he's describing. This is 
Let me just explain this a little bit further. This is an act of deliberate devotion to God. Many of our thoughts and our minds and our attention is uh, controlled passively by the things that afflict us, by the things that influence us. We consume entertainment. We are, are constantly distracted by um, the agenda of others that comes to us through the phones in our hands. And now more than ever, we are, we are constantly being pulled in all kinds of directions in life, aren't we? And so we find ourselves passively being moved around by whatever's going on in our lives and our thoughts are everywhere. But to gaze and to inquire is a very single-minded and very deliberate activity. It requires this kind of deliberate devotion. And I think about one of the, uh, the, actually the longest chapter in the Bible is the 119th Psalm. And over and over again, uh, the psalmist describes or kind of gives voice to a desire to, to fix his mind upon God in this deliberate way. He says things like this. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is an action, an active thing. He's stored up God's word. It's like he could give us time to all kinds of things, but he's giving us time to God and to God's word. I've stored up your word in my heart, he says. He prays, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. You can feel the earnestness in the way he's praying. Open my eyes. It's like I could look at all kinds of things, but God give me an open eye to see what's in your word. He prays a little bit further on. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. He's saying, God, you gave me this brain. You gave me this brain, even if it's afflicted with ADHD or, or um, you feel that your intelligence is limited. But he's saying, God, I pray to you that with the equipment you've given me, you'll give me the ability to look at you, to understand your word, to devote myself to the, to, to the things of God and to the thoughts about you. It's a deliberate thing. It's also, therefore, involves this practice, biblically, of meditation. The first psalm is, of course, the great articulation of what this is about. But Christian or biblical meditation is not the same as mindfulness meditation. It's not the same as transcendental meditation, which largely um, involves the kind of emptying of your thoughts or fixing upon one usually very unimportant thing like your breathing. Of course, breathing is important in the grand scheme of things, but you know what I mean. And of course, Christian meditation is something different. It's, it's filling your mind and heart with the thoughts of God. So in the first Psalm, it says that the man, the righteous man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. And the language of meditation biblically is about chewing, mumbling and chewing on a thought and turning it over in your mind and and digesting it and pulling it apart until it becomes a part of you until it consumes you and you're consumed by it now this is what i'm describing here this is what i think david is talking about here when he says one thing have i asked that i may gaze upon that i may inquire he's saying i want all of my mind to be totally obsessively consumed with you god and ultimately where that leads you is not, this is not, he's not describing here a kind of dry, dutiful or, or a kind of drudgery in your walk with God. What, where it leads you to is actually happiness and joy and delight. He says that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Beauty fills our hearts, doesn't it? With delight. We are hardwired to appreciate beautiful things and to feel joy when we see beauty around us. 
And of course, right now, your vista is somewhat cut back and curtailed because the beauty you're living in London is probably the bricks of the block opposite your bedroom. But what David's describing here is a heart that is so consumed with the things of God that it begins to burn with passion and delight. That's what this first psalm is about as well. When he says that this person who meditates on God's law day and night, he says his delight is in the law of the Lord. He doesn't meditate just for the purpose of learning, just for the purpose of acquiring more knowledge. He doesn't meditate just to change his behavior or any of these kinds of things. What does he meditate for? Well, the answer is that he meditates ultimately so that his heart will burn with joy and with delight, that he'll experience happiness in God. I, one of my favorite moments in scripture, you know, if I could go anywhere in history for just one hour, I would go to this moment in Luke's gospel in the 24th chapter. It's after the resurrection has taken place when the two disciples are walking along a road and this unknown stranger comes alongside them and asks them, why are you so glum? And what they don't know at this point is that it's the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in his new resurrected form. And he begins to explain to them what's just happened in Jerusalem a couple of days earlier when their savior was crucified. And it says that beginning with the scriptures, he opened to them all the scriptures concerning himself. And later they realized that was Jesus giving us a Bible study on the road to Emmaus. And they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he taught to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Didn't our hearts burn? That's the ultimate purpose of gazing upon the Lord, of inquiring in his temple, of chewing on truth about God, of becoming like David, someone who dwells in his presence and thinks hard and loves the things of God. It's so that your heart will burn with this kind of passionate injection of adrenalized love for the living God. It starts in the mind, but it floods your entire being with delight. That's what David is describing. Such a person then is emotionally invincible. Because even if, you know, David's under attack from every side, his heart is so captivated by the living God. One thing have I asked, that I may dwell, that I may gaze, that I may inquire. His heart is so wrapped up with God that it it really doesn't matter what's going on around him. Now that is a song in the dark, isn't it? I want to ask one last question as I close. Is this, is this a realistic expectation? And in one sense, I think it's not. You know, the idea that you or I could live every moment of our lives from here on in this state of constant awareness of God's presence and undistracted gazing and inquiring after the things of God, it's not realistic, is it? Because we know what we are like. There's only one man who ever lived who truly embodied what this psalm is about, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who dwelt in God's presence constantly throughout his life here on earth. And he spoke about that intimacy he enjoyed with the Father. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. There was this constant communication with the Lord in which he knew the heart of God and the will of God moment by moment and was always aware of the Father's presence in his life. Jesus is the only one who has lived and fulfilled this prayer that he would dwell in God's house every day.
But we are hidden in Christ. And Christ has given us his Holy Spirit in order to transform us from what we were to becoming more and more like him. So although I know that realistically none of us are going to be perfectly embodying this kind of level of devotion to God, nevertheless, God is calling you to a higher place in a sense, to a place of more constant, steady, undistracted, loving devotion to him. When the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, you find that your heart moves. You find that the things that you were interested in become less interesting and the things that you were afraid of are no longer causes to fear because your heart is captivated with the things of God. And so we see this throughout the New Testament. Wherever there are people, especially in times of danger, it seems to me, these spirit-filled men and women find the fulfillment of this psalm in their own lives. There's Stephen, for example, the first Christian martyr. He's experiencing his brains being pummeled by rocks as he's being stoned to death. And what is going on in that moment of unbelievable danger that will ultimately lead to his death in a few moments? It tells us in Acts 7, he, full of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus living in him, he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven. And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. There it is. Even in the, most, in the moment of most extreme fear and danger, the spiritful person, the person who's walking with Jesus, can have a life that is absolutely fixed upon the living God. You get it also in Acts 16. Here we find Paul and Silas on a, on a um, missionary journey. They're in Philippi and they're put in jail in Philippi. And whenever they're in jail, they're always reckoning with the possibility that they might be put to death very shortly after that. And what are they doing? It tells us about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. They're being very irritating is the answer to everyone else in the prison, but largely because their hearts are so captivated with things of God, even though they're suffering in that moment. They're spirit-filled men. And the spirit is fulfilling Psalm 27 in their lives. One thing have I asked of the Lord. Even though my circumstances are less than ideal, they're praying, they're singing hymns. Their hearts, their minds are captivated with the things of God. One last example. The book of Revelation is written by the Apostle John when he's an old man. And it seems that he's been exiled from his place of ministering in Ephesus to an island called Patmos. In other words, he's experiencing lockdown. And in his position of lockdown, which is less than ideal, because he wants to still be with God's people ministering to them, there he encounters Christ in a profound way. He says in Revelation 1, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, I was in lockdown. I was isolated. I was exiled because the, the, the authorities consider me a danger. And then he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What does a man do when he's in danger, when all his options have been taken away from him. When he has no freedom, he finds intimacy with God. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And then he says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And he turns and he sees the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And he's struck on the floor like he's a dead man. Friend, 
This is a profoundly important moment in our lives. It may be the case that you do not know God for yourself. Will you find in these moments of isolation and of a change of pace, will you find in these moments an opportunity to develop a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Christ died for you so that you could be forgiven. He took his sins upon himself and his body when he was crucified so that you could have access to God, so that you could go into God's presence without guilt, without fear, and enjoy what David's describing, dwelling in God's house. And some of you, you've been Christians for years, but you haven't been enjoying this privilege. You haven't been walking with the Lord. And the Lord wants to stir up new desires in your heart. He doesn't want you to remain as you were with a life that's full of distractions and competing desires and idols. He wants you to be able to pray with David. One thing have I asked of the Lord and it makes you invincible. It means that nothing can happen to you that can possibly threaten your joy because you have God. That is the heart of the Christian life. It's this peace. It's this joy. It's this stability. Let me pray as Pete and Nat come and lead us in a response of worship. Father, we want to give you thanks that in you we have a rock-like stability, that in you we have a privilege that we can come before you and say with David, Lord, I want to be in your presence. And we know that you will answer that prayer. We know that you will give us access to you. We know that we can come confidently, as the scriptures say, to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. My prayer for the church that I lead, that I have the privilege of pastoring, my prayer is that, Lord, each of us will learn a new intimacy with you in this season that is deeper, that is more profound, that is more ongoing than anything we've known before. Invigorate our prayer lives, Lord. Invigorate our ability to see wonderful things in your word. Teach us to gaze. Teach us to inquire. I pray in the pulling away and the stripping away of every other thing in our lives right now, we discover that you are enough. So that when these things are added again in the future and we, we're back at work and we're back with friends and we're back potentially dating or whatever it is that distracts or takes our time and attention and many of these things being good things, Lord, that none of them will compete with this one thing. That it's you, Lord. It's you, Lord. One thing we've asked, Lord. Give us a sense even now that we're dwelling with you. May we behold your beauty. The Father who loves us. The Father who gave us his Son. Who sent Jesus to redeem us. Who pours out his Spirit upon us now. May we gaze on the beauty of this wonderful Trinitarian God. And be captivated, Lord, we pray. Amen.